Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. Doug, this book is interesting on so many different levels because there's some exciting uh, things that you talk about in Fire in the Streets. You begin, if you will, um, by, in, in, and of all things, the introduction. Uh, <laughs> you ask the question, who started the fire? And even as I'm looking at the chapters, how the blaze got started, burning it all down, most combustible topics, a better fire. It seems to me, you know, you're, you're playing off the metaphor of the streets uh, burning in, in 2020 after the, uh, the um, COVID crisis and the George Floyd crisis. But I couldn't help but think about your pal that you wrote your doctoral dissertation on. Oh, Blaise Pascal. Who seems to love this same metaphor of fire, because you're you're not just talking about a, a cultural fire. You're talking about also a metaphysical kind of a fire, something that ignites not just the imagination, but the way we think about things. Well, I so guess, let's yeah. start with the metaphor of fire. Sure. Well, it really starts with literal fire. Right. The riots of 2020 that were really... Uh, really sparked by the George Floyd killing, right? So that really caused a lot of us, I think, to wonder what was happening and how safe is our country. I was in Willow, Alaska in the summer of 2020 with my wife, Kathleen, and we wondered if we should come back Mm -hmm. to Denver. We wondered if it was safe to come back to a big city. So I talked to several friends, pastors, and so on, and they said, we think it's safe, but I don't think anyone expected so much, so much discontent, so many people talking about destroying the American system. The American system had failed. And, of course, you had over a billion dollars of damage, 20 to 30 people killed, many people injured, public buildings torn down. You had statues toppled and so on. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of this. I'm a philosopher, so I want to figure out what are the ideas that are fueling the literal flames, what's the fire in the minds of men, so to speak, to steal a phrase from James Billington's book of the same name. And so I have a background in looking at the history of ideas, and I realized that Marxism was at the heart of this. The root was Marxism, but it was a particular kind of Type Marxism of, mm-hmm. called critical race theory, or sometimes called cultural Marxism. Anyway, the root of this goes to Marxism, but it's a version of Marxism that includes racial and sexual categories. So Mm -hmm. classical Marxism says the workers are oppressed by the owners through profit, and eventually this will lead to a revolution where the workers revolt against the owners and establish something called the dictatorship of the proletariat, and eventually classes will just fade away completely, there'll be no conflict, and so on. Now that, of course, never happened. Mm-hmm. So what happened with later thinkers, people in what is called the uh, critical theory movement, people like Herbert Marcuse and others, they said, well, 
we need to add some other elements of analysis to why people are oppressed because the workers seem somewhat content with their wages and their status of living in the United States through the 1960s. So they must be oppressed in other ways. They're culturally oppressed. They're oppressed through sexual minorities being discriminated against. There's still a lot of racial oppression. So through people like Herbert Marcuse and others, also Derek Bell, the legal theorist, developed this idea called critical race theory that divides people essentially in terms of race and ethnicity and also gender identity. So there's this ongoing conflict. It's a conflict worldview. So when people saw that terrible video of George Floyd being restrained and dying under the the literal knee of a white policeman, the narrative that was applied to all this, and it really comes out of critical race theory, Mm -hmm. was that society is systemically oppressed. It's the white against the blacks. The police have declared war on African Americans. And so the whole system has to be burned down, essentially. It's not that it has to be reformed. It has to be torn to the ground, burned to the ground, and then somehow rebuilt from the ground up. Well, let let me ask you kind of a... Uh, an, uh, uh, what I think is an interesting question anyway, it seems like there's a perfect storm that took place in 2020 right? because this same thing, we saw outrageous behavior in the 1960s and there was, of course, rioting. But do you think that there was a kind of a, a perfect storm? Uh, there was a ripening, if you will, where a, a media refused to actually try to explore all of the uh, of, of the ramifications of, of what went on, not just with George Floyd, but with all of of the other things that went on before that you talk about it in the book, too, of of what we might call the history in 2014 of of the uh, of the person in Missouri, was it? Who, Michael Brown. Yeah, Michael Brown, you know, hands up, don't shoot. So so there is this perfect storm of a growing suspicion a, a growing suspicion that this really is a problem, but then a ripening of the academic and media where you have this perfect storm of, of where people will go, this is going to generate enough rage. You talk about this in the book, too. It'll generate enough rage that the whole world will 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 take notice. Well, that's true. You had all the frustration related to the covid problem. And then people break out into the streets. They have this image of a black man being killed by a white police officer. And then you have this narrative that this is just an emblem of how bad American society is. And it's been bad from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's been racist from the beginning. It's racist now. And so we need to destroy things to make our point. And there was over a billion dollars of damage in the summer of 2020. And it was not just people taking to the streets. It was an idea that America is not just flawed, but actually terribly corrupt, and it has to be completely broken down. And done away with. Yeah. But one of the things that you talk about is the unfolding of critical theory and uh, as it evolves into critical race theory. It begins in, in academia... But it makes its way 
into the popular culture in a kind of an odd way, don't you think? These ideas usually start in the academy and then they work their way through popular culture, literature, and so on. So a lot of the ideas were laid out in what's called the New Left in the 1960s, and this was influenced much by Herbert Marcuse, who was a mentor to Angela Davis, who is a, a 60s radical black woman. And she was actually a mentor to some of the leaders of Black Lives Matter. So you see that connection there, the chain of ideas working itself out. And the idea is that I said earlier, America is systemically racist, and so it has to be critiqued on that basis. You can't really reform it. You can't renew it. You have to look at its intrinsic structure. And the idea is that the, the Declaration was written by hypocrites, by Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, so we can't really take seriously all men are created equal. The Constitution affirms slavery, so it's not a reliable, morally upworthy, upstanding document either. And so we have to really start over again. And I challenge all those ideas in the book. Now, now what's, what's interesting to me, again, is the way that it was popularly received. Most people wouldn't say, I like socialism or I embrace socialism. There was a, there was a, a, a sort of a, a zeitgeist, a worldview in the 50s and, and the fear that communism was taking over and that socialism might be a problem. But now we have two or three socialist um, people in, in the House of Representatives. You, you would think – I guess here's what I, I, I'm asking – is the United States of America ripe for socialism and is cr critical theory and critical race theory the entree into what w would seem to be a socially acceptable mindset of socialism? Well, it really is because, as I said, the roots are in Marxism and the version now is not as overt as Marxism usually sounds – uh, but it's still socialism, and the idea is that society is so unjust with respect to race and with respect to social or rather sexual minorities that it has to be restructured from the top down. So this is the idea of equity, not equality of opportunity, which is really the historic and, uh, historical American ideal, but equity, meaning equal outcomes. So the idea of meritocracy is rejected. Meritocracy is just a way for white people to prop up their own standards against people of color. This is the critical race theory approach. So I take this to be a very bad idea in, in every way, basically. Raising the question of racial prejudice and discrepant outcomes among racial groups is significant. But you need more variables in place than just discrepancies are based on racism. That's far too simplistic. And I think the idea of trying, trying to solve discrepancies through affirmative action or through equity outcomes, that is, if we have 13% African Americans in the population at large, they should be 13% in every area of endeavor. That's a very flat reductionistic view of how society works. For example, consider the average age of someone in an ethnic group. For Japanese Americans, it's 51. And I believe for Hispanic Americans, it's about 30 and roughly the same for African Americans. Well, typically, people who have 
worked for decades and has saved money are in a higher economic bracket than younger people. I know that I make a lot more money now than I did when I was in campus ministry when I was 25 years old. I'm 65 now. Thank God. Yeah. Not that I'm wealthy. But there are all kinds of factors societally that have to be considered. And so I dedicated my book to Thomas Sowell, the great economist, who for, oh, goodness, 60 years, basically, more, has been looking at economics and race and trying to include all the relevant factors that go into societal outcomes. And what you see with critical race theory is just one causal consideration, racism, used to explain everything that's bad in society. And I don't think that's true, although racism certainly exists. Now, another interesting thing to me about the origins of critical race theory and critical theory itself, if we were to try to recreate socialism in Russia, socialism in China, this particular view here in the United States of America it doesn't seem like it would play well in Venezuela, Russia, or China. Is this a kind of a unique strain of of thinking tailored to undermine the United States of America? Well, it is because each country has its own history and background. But see, what I do in the first chapter, I talk about fire in the minds of Karl Marx and his followers. So... You have to understand what classical Marxism is, and I explain that and give a lot of original citations to it. And I talk about how Marxism led to the deaths of 100 million people in the 20th century at the hands of their own civil government. So we're talking about the reign of uh, Lenin and Stalin in the USSR, the reign of Mao Zedong in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and so on. And this is horrendous. This is a terrible human disaster. So let's talk about that for just a minute, because we want to contrast and compare the accusation of Washington Jefferson being slave owners and Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot and, and all of the rest killing 100 million human beings. Is there a kind now, now we know that slavery is is immoral and it's wrong, but is it wrong to play the moral equivalency game at this point in our discussion? No, I don't think it is because the founders, many of them were conflicted about slavery and you have, you can have a very jaded view of the declaration and say, well, Jefferson's the primary author. And he said that all men are created equal and he owns slaves. So the whole thing's just a crock or you could say that was his deepest conviction, but he wasn't living true to it. And so when you have Martin Luther King speaking at the Capitol of the United States, I think it was 1964, he says we're here to cash a check, basically. The Declaration and the Constitution are promissory notes that we need to live up to. And that's the view that I take. So I don't want to burn down the Declaration or burn down the Constitution. I think if you read them with any charity and try to find what the intention of the authors were, you'll find something actually very noble. And that's what Abraham Lincoln appealed to. That's what actually the freed slave Frederick Douglass appealed to. He said, you really see the seeds of freedom and equality in the Declaration and in the Constitution, but we have to live up to them. We're not 
wanting to destroy them and start some other form of civil government. A republic is too good to do that. One of the things that you do also in this book, and we're, we're, we're going to come back and talk about this, but um, you talk about the relationship between Marxism, uh, critical theory, and critical race theory, and how Marxism cannot stand a Judeo-Christian presence. It must not exist. Has the book now come out? Can people order it at SalemBooks.com or Amazon? Is it available by and large? Well, I got my 30 author copies last week, but the authors get the books ahead of the official release release date usually. So it's set to drop on August 2nd. Okay. You could get it at Salem or you could get it on Amazon. And if people are interested, pre-ordering helps kind of bump up the numbers and Mm -hmm. generates a little buzz for it. So put in a plug for my myself there. Sure. No, no. It's it's so important. It's such an important book because, again, this growing suspicion that something has gone wrong. But how do we talk about it? And one of the things I wanted to talk about is the relationship of atheism to Marxist philosophy, whether we're talking about – Karl Marx, or whether we're talking about uh, critical theory or critical race theory, so that right. they argue they argue that atheism is just a lack of belief in gods, and that it's an economic philosophy. And the reason why they had to be so draconian towards the church was because the church contained power and were instruments of oppression. But if the if the church will stop being an instrument of oppression. Well, it's okay for it to to exist. Talk talk a little bit about the relationship between atheism and the presence of a Judeo-Christian worldview or even the presence of historical biblical Christianity in a Marxist setting. Well, Marx was extremely antagonistic to religion. He thought, as you said, that religion oppressed people. It gave them the hope of an afterlife so they didn't have to worry about creating a better world in this life. So here's a famous quote from Marx. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. And he also said elsewhere that the criticism of religion is the basis of all criticism. That is criticism of an unjust social situation. So Marxism is incompatible with the Judeo-Christian worldview on many levels. But for one thing, uh, it doesn't believe that there is any kind of God-ordained authority in the world. Mm -hmm. It believes that any kind of free market situation, or what he would call capitalist, situation is oppressive and alienates the workers from the fruit of their labor, and that is intrinsically wrong, and it's not that you can reform that system, it has to be overturned, it has to be a revolution. So, uh, biblically speaking, there's lots of reasons to try to reform society and try to bring about a more just social order, but this has to be done in the fear of God, you see, and that's what Marxism eliminates. And that's really why Marxist civil governments in the 20th century 
slaughtered up to 100 million of their own people because the Marxist elite becomes the base of all power and has all control. And if those who are not part of the elite governing group disagree, well, then they're counter-revolutionaries and they're suffering from false consciousness and they have residual capitalist ideas and they have to be either re-educated, meaning essentially brainwashed, or liquidated. So there's no idea of intrinsic human rights in Marxism. Uh, That's an idea you get from Christianity. And you have, in fact, enshrined in the Declaration that uh, God has created all men equal with and given them certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That idea is utterly alien to Marxism. Yeah, it, it was interesting to me, Doug, to be thinking about this because it isn't just agnosticism. It's atheism. In other words, there's Frederick Engels characterized agnosticism as shame-faced atheism. And and so in their worldview, it would seem at least the followers of Marx and Engels, in their worldview, no, agnosticism isn't good enough. You have to have bold-faced atheism, not shame-faced atheism. Yeah, that's right. And here's a statement from the Communist Manifesto. Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality instead of constituting them on a new basis. It therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. That is a very radical, revolutionary claim. Now, the kind of socialism you see advocated by critical race theory doesn't usually sound quite that draconian. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. In fact, I have in the book a, a Black Lives Matter leader by the name of Hawk Newsom, and he said this, quote, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down the system and replace it, all right? And I could be speaking figuratively. I could be speaking literally. It's a matter of interpretation. Now, given the riots of 2020, I think we know what the proper interpretation is. But there's also this element of what has been called the long march through the institutions. So you think of the the Marxist radicalism of the 1960s and the riots and protests and so on. A lot of it was related to the Vietnam War. And when the Vietnam War ended, a lot of people thought, well, that kind of uh, leftism failed. And so now we can just have a new America being chastened by all the riots and the war and so on. But A lot of the uh, student activists of the 60s and 70s went into the institutions. They went into the academy. They went into media. They went into the arts with essentially the same uh, leftist or new left worldview inspired by people like Marx and Marcuse, who adapted Marxism and added a Freudian element to it and so on. And that's all bubbling under the surface. And it begins to reemerge to some extent, actually, in the Obama presidency. I talk about Mm -hmm. this. It's kind of mild, toned down, but it begins to reemerge through him. And his political career began in the living room of two Marxist bomb throwers, Mm -hmm. literally, uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadette Dorn. Uh, But he, of course, had to modulate that. He had to appear as a moderate and 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 so on. But Actually, he laid the ground for a lot of what's going on now, and he was 
influenced by a law professor named Derek Bell, mm-hmm. who was influential in developing critical race theory. So what you see in 2020, as you said earlier, is like the perfect storm. Everybody's so upset and frustrated and frightened by COVID. And then the George Floyd incident and this narrative applied of America as uh, systemically racist, and this is the emblem of it. And so fire in the streets. And that's why I decided to write my book. And you point out in your book his relationship to his pastor, whatever kind of Christianity he grows up with. It isn't what you and I would call historical biblical Christianity. He seems to um, submitted himself from a doctrinal standpoint to a man who was very open to the idea that America was systemically flawed Mm -hmm. and of necessity needs to experience judgment, maybe even, I guess, destruction is the word I was looking for. Right. Well, his pastor for many years was a man named Jeremiah Wright, and Jeremiah Wright was influenced by black liberation theology, principally by a man named James Cone. And James Cone said that, yes, Marxism is atheistic, and we Christians can't believe that, but we can use the economic analysis as an analytical tool. And we hear that phrase even today. Yes, analytical tool. Yeah, that comes out of James Cone. So we want the philosophy of the, uh, we want the economic philosophy, but not the the atheism. The theism. Yeah. Well, Well, you can hear we're coming up on a break. Yeah. (laughs) My guest is Dr. Doug Groteis. We're talking about his book, Fire in the Streets. And and again, the, the, the reality of how few people understand historical Marxism, cultural Marxism, and its relationship to critical race theory. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great privilege to talk with Dr. Doug Groteis about his book, Fire in the Streets. It's published by Salem Books. It's going to be available in just a couple of weeks, but you can pre-order it. And it's so important. It's such an important book. And Doug, as I was reading the first two chapters, I was thinking about, of all people, Jordan Peterson, And how mm-hmm. you should send a copy to Jordan Peterson, Fire in the Streets. Because I can try. Getting through to him is going to be hard. Yeah. I, maybe I'm going to just make a conscientious effort because he issued a kind of, not ultimatum, but a challenge to the churches um, about some of these important issues. Uh, you know, the accusation that that America is systemically racist, fundamentally flawed, and the only trajectory worthy of consideration is is its destruction. Now, one of the things that you talk about later on in the book, and we, we can circle back to it, is the three-fifths compromise and how how people don't seem to understand exactly what that was at the constitutional convention and did it um did it enshrine slavery in such a way that even the constitution is suspect yeah it's not what many people think in fact uh, recently Whoopi goldberg uh, was upset with the supreme court decision and she said what are we going to go back to 
saying that African Americans are worth one fourth of a human. She got the fraction wrong. Yeah, the three fifths. Right. <laughs> what it is is there was a compromise between the northern states and the southern states with the Constitution. The North feared that if they insisted on a constitution that gave blacks freedom, the South would create their own slavery society, a different mm -hmm. nation, right? So what they did was they limited the representational power of the slaves to three-fifths per person, which limited the number of congressmen that the South would have. So it's the because apportioning of the House of Representatives. Yeah, the House of Representatives, exactly. So that goes by population. And if you count all the slaves, the South is going to have more power in that body of government. So the North said, we'll make a compromise. It had nothing to do with the intrinsic value of African-American zip. Nothing. Not a, it was a compromise that actually restricted the voting power of the slavery South. And so the Constitution combined with the Declaration, are really like time bombs to detonate slavery, to blow up slavery. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So when people invoke this, uh, the Constitution is not just flawed, but racist and horrible, and why trust what a bunch of dead white racists said, because they deemed blacks only three-fifths human, I want to say, you know what, you're an ignoramus. You have no idea what you're talking about. And why don't you do a little bit of history and look into it? So I appeal to people like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, who believe that our founding documents gave us the principles of freedom, but we had to live up to them. Mm -hmm. You know, America is a self-reforming nation, and we've been at it now for, what, about 250 years. So the idea of destroying it at the root is just absurd. We, it can be reformed according now, to its best principles. Now, if we if we go all the way back to this idea of Marxism being an economic philosophy, it doesn't stay there, does it? I mean, you're a philosopher. This economic philosophy seems to turn into a political philosophy and even oh, yeah. a philosophy of what it means – What's the word I'm looking for? An all-encompassing philosophy about well, what reality. Be, yeah, what it means to be human. Yeah. So, so when you look at critical race theory, the most significant thing about anybody is what group they belong to, what ethnic group, what racial group, what sexual group. And from a biblical worldview, and really from the American system, what's most significant is who you are as an individual before God. You have rights given to you that cannot be taken away by the state. The state should secure these rights, but the state does not give or take away rights ultimately. They're based on what philosophers call natural law. Uh, these are moral truths that are true whether or not we believe them, and they're given to us by God, and we should try to discern them and then craft a civil government based on them. So when Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail, he articulated a natural law doctrine. He said, I broke the laws of man in the South, but I, through my peaceful, peaceful demonstration, I did not break the laws of God because the law at that time in the South with segregation was unjust. But you see, King 
was a reformist. He was not a revolutionary. And what we see now are revolutionaries, whether they're on the streets burning down police stations or whether they're in legislatures or whether they're drafting curricula for state schools. They're really revolutionaries. So historical Marxism seems to be very different from the secularism, eroticism, and relativism of critical theory and critical race theory. Well, it's a critical race theory is a development. So one very significant piece that I skimmed over very quickly mm-hmm. is the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who right. basically wed Marx with Freud. So Freud had a very sexualized view of the human being and believed that society was based on repress, repressing sexual urges. And Marcuse looked at that and said, what we really need to get the revolution cranked up is to release these sexual urges. So the constraints on sexuality through monogamy or through heterosexual behavior need to be lifted so the sexual energy will be brought to bear to bring about the ultimate revolution. So let's get rid of those taboos. Let's include sexual minorities in the revolution, and let's make an appeal to people of color to get them on board and expand the idea of oppression beyond just the economic to the racial and also the sexual. So Marcuse is a key figure. So I spend quite a bit of time with him in the book. Now, he died in 1979, Mm -hmm. but I think, as I mentioned, he mentored Angela Davis, who was a very significant uh, black radical in the 1960s. She's still alive and she's still active. Uh, She wrote the foreword to Patrice Cullors' biography, and Patrice Cullors is one of the, or was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Now, do you do you think that the founders of Black Lives Matters are really closet capitalists, or are they just simply hypocrites (laughs) and corrupt? I think they're probably hypocrites and corrupt. (laughs) Their their worldview. I mean, the ones that I've read about, um, the world. You know, they say their worldview is Marxist. You can go online and find a YouTube video where uh, one of them says, we are trained Marxists. Mm -hmm. Now, when you hear that word trained, it means activist. Mm -hmm. It means revolutionary. We're not just professors expounding Marxism or writing our articles or books. We want to radically change the whole system. But then when you, you look at how Black Lives Matter has used the tremendous money it's gotten and how... Some of these folks own several homes and are making millions of dollars. You see, a lot of this comes out of white guilt. And I get that term from Shelby Steele. Like, America is unjust. Terrible things are happening. So we need to just throw a lot of money at good black causes to sort of atone for our sin by giving money to radical black causes. And it ends up that Black Lives Matter was Black Lives Matter was ingenious in choosing the name of the organization. Right. You know, how can you be against an organization called that? But when you look at their philosophy and you look at their original mission statement, which I quote in my book, they are against the nuclear family. Uh, They want to bring it down. They want to affirm the LGBTQ perspective on life, especially in the black community, because African-Americans in the U.S. have traditionally not been all that excited about that agenda, but they said we need to change that, we need to destroy the nuclear family, and we need to really have a total revolution. 
You need to get this book, Fire in the Streets by Dr. Doug Grotice. I don't have time to ask him that, that other question, but maybe next time. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.